Asalaamu Alaikum, welcome everyone. In today's podcast, I'll be speaking to Dr. Abdullah Rotman. He's the principal of Cambridge Muslim College, founder of Shifa Integrative Counseling, and co founder and executive director of the International Association of Islamic Psychology. Uh, he holds an MA and a PhD in psychology and is a licensed professional counsellor and a board certified registered art therapist currently living in the UK. Dr. Abdullah was a student of the late Professor Malik Badri in Islamic psychology and in addition to his academic training has studied privately with a number of traditional Islamic scholars throughout the Muslim world. Uh, His academic research focus has been on approaching counselling from within Islamic paradigm and establishing an indigenous Islamic theoretical orientation to human psychology that is grounded in the knowledge of the soul from the Islamic tradition. He's the author of a number of books, including Developing a Model of Islamic Psychology and Psychotherapy, and also Islamic Psychology Around the Globe. We really discuss his journey to Islam after having lived amongst various spiritual communities and having travelled around the world, uh, from the Rastafarians to living as a shepherd, and here he meets a saint, Sidi Sheikh Muhammad Said al-Jamal al-Rafai, who was the imam at Al-Aqsa Mosque in Palestine, uh, a, uh, a mufti, a Sufi teacher, and the transformative experience Sidi uh, Jamal gave him led him to a journey through Islam and how he visited and learned from various shuyukh, which he tells us about, and uh, we discussed the pedagogy or the tarbiyah that was used and how that informs some of his work at the Cambridge Muslim College. We also discuss the difference between transactional vs transformational Islam and some suggestions on addressing disenfranchised youth and raising children in the digital age. We also look at uh, the importance of presence or mindfulness and how that's inherent within the Islamic tradition. Before we begin the podcast, I'd just like to give a shout out to some Patreons uh, and these are people who are supporting the Hikmah project through a small monthly donation. So a huge thank you to Oya Glam, Adnan Masood, Jim Turner and Rahima Makgala. Um, if you'd like to find out more information on how you can support the Hikmah project, please visit www.thehikmahproject.com. I'd also like to announce our first course is scheduled to uh, be delivered hopefully in September on the introduction to metaphysics through the lens of Ibn Arabi and that will be delivered by Dr. Muftar Ali. Uh, details will be uh, posted on our social media platforms and shared via our newsletter uh, once they have been finalised. Um, so without further ado, here's the podcast. Asalaamu Alaikum Dr. Abdullah, welcome to the Hikmah podcast. Thank you. Wa alaikum salam. It's good to be here with you. Absolutely. I've been really looking forward to uh, speaking to you and I've got a number of questions. So to fire away, could you tell us about some of the shuyukh you studied with and what it is that you uh, learned from them? Well, so I've, I've, uh, I've studied with several different shuyukh. The first sheikh that I studied with was uh, Sheikh Muhammad Jamal from Philistine, who was the caretaker of Al-Aqsa Mosque. 
And, um, you know, what originally drew me to him, I wasn't Muslim uh, at the time. And what I was seeking was a, an understanding of the soul that was rooted in spiritual knowledge that was that I could incorporate into my sort of approach to psychology and healing. So I had finished, I had just recently finished my master's degree in psychology and I'd always studied different spiritual traditions. And so my approach to psychology was really rooted in this notion of the soul and, and the development and the healing of the soul. And that understanding our psychology and bringing that into balance is very much intertwined with this notion of spiritual spirituality and spiritual attainment. And so I was sort of primed to be looking for, almost as a practitioner, what is, what is a spiritually grounded, deep understanding of healing on a, in a spiritual level. And, and I found Sheikh Muhammad Jamal, who was a Sheikh, like he, he was a, a Qadi and, you know, I mean, he had all of this knowledge in terms of, uh, you could say scholarly academic knowledge, but he was at the time that I met him, he was in, it was in the US, he was teaching people how to heal themselves and other people with these with this science of the soul from the islamic tradition and it was all about the heart it was all about recognizing that the core of the human being is not our thoughts it's not our what when you know when we think of when we talk about psychology conventionally it's it's a lot about identity and cognition and you know, this notion of I think, therefore I am. And what he was guiding people toward is an experiential uh, orientation towards the heart as the center of the self. And then from this attunement to the heart, that this is where you unfold all of the sort of knots in your psyche to not only heal trauma and heal sometimes even medical ailments, but ultimately to have this spiritual um, mastery and spiritual attainment. You know, so there's this development. And so I was really from the beginning just drawn to this notion of healing and, and spiritual development. And this is, this is what I saw happening, you know, and this is what I, uh, alhamdulillah, got to taste with him and see him, you know, uh, guiding people and teaching people how to um, get in touch with the heart and, and actually clear blockages on the heart. And so he was, this is my experience. And, and it was... It was then when I, through that experience of having these profound experiences of my own healing, of my own sort of heart opening experiences where, you know, things that I had struggled with my, my whole life in terms of 
you know, things that we get hung up on or patterns that we have, relationship things, these started to really almost like dams breaking and my heart's really opening. And at that point, I was like, this is, this is it. You know, this is, this is deeper than anything that I have found in my own spiritual seeking, but also anything that I've learned from psychology and healing in terms of really doing the work of trying to help people move through things. And so this not only, um, basically it, it became very clear to me that it, there was, it was Islam because the Sheikh, uh, Sheikh Mohammed Jamal, even though he was giving people this healing, uh, you know, that they wanted, especially in the West, I think there's a lot of like, not people were drawn to it because of like, almost like new age, healing movements, but really what I understood, and, and, it, and it's pretty easy to see in his writings and his teachings, the whole time he's talking about Islam. He's not saying, well, I'm teaching this and I happen to be Muslim. It's the entire, um, you know, Islam itself is about the heart. It is about this journey of the soul and, and really um, coming into presence in your heart is how you witness God and, and, and that that is the, the core of, of Islam sort of philosophically, but even Sharia, that, that the Sharia is actually to put a container in place to uh, help somebody be able to develop in this way. And I think for me, it was very easy for me to see, okay, I understood this spiritual uh, heart uh, approach. What I was missing, what I just didn't know up until that point was Islam. And I saw that, you know, the foundations of knowledge of, of the deen, but also like Sharia were really necessary in order to really take this further and go deep. And so this is how I, came to Islam. I, I embraced Islam, became Muslim, took the Shahada, and I was ready to just, you know, absorb and drink from this well, well of knowledge. And at that point, Sheikh Muhammad Jamal said, you know, he, he instructed me to go study with Sheikh Nuruddin Durki as sort of an extension of his own teaching to uh, get this grounding knowledge in, you know, even just Fadayin to, to begin with. Um, and so then there's this whole other trajectory uh, of how that tarbiyah happened and that development in studying with the Sheikh that sort of rounded out this education and this approach and this really, you know, um, my journey into Islam at that point. So that's amazing. So for the benefit of our listeners, just to put this into context, you had obviously been uh, meeting with um, various spiritual communities around the world and traveling and from the Rastafarians to so you were a shepherd. And so, so you'd yeah. experienced all these different spiritual modes of being, but yet Sheikh Jamal gave you something completely different. And yeah. when you said 
for example, this was Islam and nothing outside it. it this was essentially the Islamic teaching. Was it um, experiential? Was it like Reiki? Was he channeling energy? What, what sort of uh, practices were you doing with him? Yeah, so uh, it was it was first an, um, a, a focus on the physical area in your chest as the, the, the physical location of the spiritual heart. Um, and I think the first thing that he would do is orient, orient me towards having that experience and recognizing that not only is this the core, this, this center in our chest is where we need to identify the self versus the head, right? And so there was a physical orientation to an energetic experience of the self. And then once he helped define and develop that awareness of being present, being present in the heart, and we would do that through vicar, but also just in terms of like sitting, putting your hand on your heart, um, you know, maybe it's doing vicar and saying, you know, saying Allah while, while having the hand on the heart and, and being still to, to just sort of orient to, okay, this is where, this is where the core is. This is where the center is. And then once you, once we do that, it become very clear actually that all of this emotion starts bubbling up. Like, you know, how, when you get nervous, you feel butterflies in your chest, you know, like, when you start to be pay attention there and bring awareness there, then also the stuff that you need to work on shows itself. It becomes, starts to come to the surface. And so then really what he's doing is, is reading ayat in that place, right? So connecting with the remembrance of Allah in the heart. And so it's, it's, you know, a lot of other, like, so you said Reiki, so a lot of other energetic healing or, or new age healing, it'll be similar in the sense of like getting in touch with the energetic reality of the, 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 the sort of light body or energy body. But then if the person doesn't have a, a, a belief in the one God and isn't connected to a lineage of understanding how to actually, um, invoke remembrance of that one God, then it can be pretty amorphous and can lead into lots of other places. And it can be relatively um, dangerous in the sense it's not grounded and held in something. And so what he's doing is connecting that experience, experiential uh, orientation of the, of the, the self that's beyond just our thoughts and our skin and then bringing into it what we would, what, what any Muslim knows, like reading the three kuls, you know, everybody, everybody knows that these are protection surahs, but it's like the orientation and for most people is, well, you read this ayah from the Quran and it's either, it's either a practice of recitation or, you know, people understand that there's like an aspect of rukia where, where these, protect these these surahs provide protection but it's vague right it's okay well, i'm going to read this surah and inshallah it will do something 
Whereas what he was doing is very, um, I would say, uh, specific to the place in your heart where the blockage is or where you've covered up the remembrance of Allah in your heart. And so this is why paying attention, being present with the heart, and then, and then when those things come up, like when the, the, the anxiety comes up in your heart, paying attention to how does it show up? What does it feel like? And then when you can pay attention to how it shows up, that means you've, you've identified a specific thing that needs to be healed, not just this sort of vague notion of like, oh, inshallah, I'll heal. But we actually have specific blockages that need to heal from our, from our life experiences. And so it's taking, opening those very specific things in the heart and, and bringing in these ayat or these, um, you know, maybe it's a specific name of Allah. It's all from the Quran and it's all, you know, um, knowing how to sort of what he what he had the knowledge where he could he knew exactly what the heart needs and it would be in this in the form of either a a, a dua maybe a a series of ayat or a name of allah in a specific way but it's pointed into the heart not just sort of a recitation of it and then a cognitive vague understanding that that is healing but it's like if you can imagine, it's almost like an injection into a wound of medicine rather than somebody just sort of rubbing the medicine or around or near them, if you, if you see what I'm saying. And I know he's a, a sheikh in the Shah Dali Tariqa who had yes. a profound understanding of Ibn Arabi and Iqbarian metaphysics and some wonderful, absolutely universal teachings, as well as, as you said, being the caretaker of um, Al-Aqsa Mosque um, and uh, a deep knowledge of the Hadith and certified in various Islamic sciences. So really a very profound man. How was it when you met him? Did, did you realize you were in, in the presence of uh, a saintly being? What, yes. What sort of memories do you have of him? Uh, I mean, I had been, I had before that time spent a lot of time with spiritual masters of different traditions. And so, you know, I, I, it wasn't foreign or unfamiliar to me to be around somebody who's in a really high, high station. And so that it was clear that he is one of these types of uh, spiritual masters, but what was different about him, you know, and a lot of other, a lot of other, groups or gurus or mass spiritual masters that would be around like they're they're kind and they're loving but there is there's usually some sort of barrier in terms of um you need to be you need to be doing something in order to receive the, their approval perhaps uh, maybe doing what they're doing or, or being on a certain path or having access. With Sheikh Jamal, it was like this, um, this um, unfettered well of, of continual mercy and love 
to whoever came near him to the point where if somebody came to him and wasn't Muslim and was even like not trying to be Muslim or, 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 um, you know, um, hostile towards Islam wouldn't phase him one bit. Like he, he, he didn't, he wasn't invested in anybody else being a certain way or doing anything in order for, for his love and mercy to be, uh, available to them. It was just complete and unconditional. And that doesn't mean, you know, he wasn't, um, you know, his name, his name was Sheikh Jamal. So he was, he had this Jamal quality of beauty. But he, there was times when he had the Jalal come out too. But usually it was with somebody he loved and care, cared about. But his real, I think, character and quality was just an enormous ability to emulate pure love. And people who, who experienced that were around him were profoundly affected by it because this is what people need. And this is what often people don't get to experience in life to be truly not only loved by a person, which he was, he was a loving person who you could feel this love like as a grandfather type of love. But at the same time, he was, he was really a conduit and like um, transmitting al-wadud, like the love, like this, 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 this experience of God as love really was something that you could not deny by being in his presence. And so what that did is it really, it, it, could, it could like really feed your soul and your heart. And, you know, just a lot of, um, so that even just sitting with him, you would feel healed to a degree or you would feel more whole than usual, right? Um, and he just had this real <clears throat> ability to make people feel like they are accepted by God. Um, you know, and then as he would go, so he was, he was had this, I, he really embodied mercy. And I think a lot, especially this is why a lot of Westerners were attracted to him, especially non-people who weren't previously Muslim, is that, you know, everybody has a problem with religion and, and all kinds of things that, that box you in or that, that you know, you, you're only accepted under certain conditions or perhaps there's a rejection. You know, we, we're, we're, we reject ourselves, we judge ourselves. So as soon as we, you know, have that experience with somebody else, it, it it's, uh, exacerbates the whole situation. And I think this is how people experience religion and, may, and very much so experience Islam of like, it's very rule oriented and you're only accepted if you're doing these things and this notion that, well, Allah is not going to love you if you're, you know, doing these things that are haram and, and you have to, you know, whereas what, what he was um, helping people experience is that the reality that, you know, Allah says that he, he, his mercy is un, un, there's no way we can even uh, understand how deep it is, you know? And, and so he was really embodied that and really helped people to see that they were accepted first. And then once you feel accepted and loved and okay, 
then you can start to work on the things that you need to work on, right? Hmm. Instead of like, well, you, you need to work on things, you better start there first. I think his approach was, you're, you're, you're okay, you deserve love, and you're accepted as you are. And it's like, no matter what you're doing, you're okay. And for some people, they took that message the wrong way, and they maybe felt like, oh, that means I don't really have to do anything, I'm okay. And what he was saying is, you're okay, but if you want to improve, you have to do these things that are in line with Sharia because that's what's going to help you. Not because you have to, but because you get to, you, you, you need to. That's interesting. So I believe he was a Qadi, a Mufti, a judge uh, yes. and who could give rulings in Islamic law. That's so right. obviously he was very steeped in the Islamic tradition and the Islamic legal tradition. When you were with him, what was his approach to fiqh or the Sharia? It was different for different people. Like so, in his own in in his own life, and for himself, and for people who are there at the, ready to take that, he was very sh- strict with the Sharia because he knows all of the 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 rulings and he knows the wisdom, and so he and he believes in it and he guides people to it. But he also had a large following of people who were not. Um, if he would have approached them that way, would have not embraced Islam, would have left. They weren't, they weren't coming, the, the Sharia part of it was sort of scary for them or would turn them off. And I think he understood that. And so he, I see it as like, he was almost like this net. Why he, he cast a wide net and he'd bring people in because he could show them the real truth of the matter. But then... I think um, he w- he seemed to me to be focused on bringing people in, but when it came to like focusing on like the the specifics of of fiqh, um, he would in my case he passed. I wanted more of that. I was like, okay, I get, I get it, because there's a, a lot of other people around at that time who actually didn't want that. They were like, just give me the hakika. Right, uh, I'll 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 just take the hakika and I, I'll I'll not take the Sharia. And because he was so merciful and accepting, they got the message like that wasn't necessary. When that's not what he was saying. He was he was saying, when you're ready, this is necessary. But you can be ready. You know, like I don't want. He's not going to scare you away. And so for me, I happened to be ready pretty quick. And I because I saw it, and I said, okay. I get the hakika. I've, I've, I've understood that actually for a long time. And this is where it's more complete. I found it in Islam. But then I quickly realized I need the, the details of the, the container to contain all that. And so instead of him teaching me, he assigned me to Sheikh Nuruddin Durki to, to learn those things. Um, and I think Sheikh Nuruddin had a much different approach. He was a different type of teacher, different type of Sheikh, where... Um, you know, it's still the same tariqa, same shadli tariqa, same, you know, belief and knowledge. And But I think um, he was a bit more focused on you have to do these things in Sharia and you have to be grounded in this knowledge uh, and in order for that to be in, in balance. And so with the healing tradition that Sheikh Jamal was teaching 
just to be clear, was was that essentially the Shadili Tariqa? Was that, or was this a, a different sort of lineage or tradition from uh, a, an Islamic healing tradition that he was uh, conveying? No, I think there are uh, some crossover, but I think what he was teaching in this is is beyond just Shadili Tariqa. Um, you find it in, you know, there's a, you know, all of the shayukh and all of the tariqah are, you know, the real, the real shayukh. When it comes down to it, it's about, um, it's much more than understanding the hikmah and understanding the wisdom and understanding, teaching people how to be present and do dhikr, but it's, you know, tariqah. Like when you, when you are with a sheikh and you make bayah, to a sheikh, that sheikh is responsible for the development of your soul. And the process of the development of the soul is very much a healing, almost you could say a shaman type of situation where you're, the person is walking that person through the difficulties that they need to go through to put their soul into balance and to um, actualize their potential. And so that's, that is... Uh, that is a deep level of what a sheikh does with his murids is, is moves them in that way. And that is a healing process. I mean, they do it on the heart. They, they heal the heart. Um, and so I think what he was teaching was a lot of this sort of, in some ways, secrets of this. Of this. And I think usually in a lot of tariqas, that wouldn't be taught to, to as many people as he was teaching it to. You know, it'd be only for the sort of initiated or the type of people who, who have re reached those stations. But I think he, he was doing it because I think he recognized that it was a different time and that there is going to be a time very soon, which we are seeing now, where the, the these type of shayukh are, are no longer. There's very few of them. And so in order, instead of letting that die, he's, you know, passing it on. Um, and so, yeah, it was part of the Shadali Tariqa, but also beyond that. Um, it's, it's more of a universal uh, reality of, of the Tariqa. I know some shuyukh of Tariqa would say that, yes, th there is a sort of healing process you whose name is medicine and whose zikr is a healing. Mm. And, but at the same time, they would, some shu would say on the level of the soul, th that's essentially, you know, bringing it into wholeness, that, that part's fine. But if, if a Marid has psychological issues, whether it's depression, anxiety, phobias, well, maybe not phobias, but insomnia, certain psychological issues where, you know, maybe the GP would give antidepressants or, you know, th there's some psychological work there to do. I, I've heard one or two of you who, 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 who might turn around and say, actually, we're not your psychotherapist. We, we, we're teachers of a tariqa, but we're not there to heal you on a psychological level. But I know others that might actually see the psychological as part of this inner work. Yeah. Um, could you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, a couple couple things. One is that, you know, different shayukh are at different stations and different, uh, have different 
uh, things that they where they're at in terms of their their level and ability, but also in terms of their you know what their sort of path is and how they teach in their specific way. And so some for some shayukh they don't they don't have that they may not have the ability to do that, or they may not see it as part of their path. But the the reality is that uh, there have been in the past shayukh who, who have this level where they can heal, they can heal the, the psychological imbalances as well as the, as well as teach the fiqh and, and teach people about dhikr and the, the path of, of tasawuf, but also on his deep spiritual and psychological healing. Now, within that realm though, there are, um, there is, there is a reality that there are some psychological imbalances or diagnoses or ailments that are not necessarily uh, able to be healed through spiritual work, like they, because they have a physical um, cause. And from a real deep spiritual perspective, sometimes the, they aren't meant to be healed. And there may be wisdom in the, the illness being there. And so, so uh, there's a notion of endogenous depression and, and exogenous depression. And so, and the, one of the, the, well, actually the first person to talk about this was Abu Zayd al-Belhi in the ninth century, uh, Islamic scholar who, who wrote very detailed about this notion that there are some things that are because of external factors in life, like either traumatic events or relationship things or, you know, which causes depression, which can be worked on through self-awareness and through um, sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy, which he also talked about in the ninth century and spiritual, spiritual work where you can transcend these or put into balance these, these exogenous sources of depression. But then endogenous depression is something that there's a, there can actually be a chemical imbalance. There can actually be a physical uh, cause to somebody's um, uh, experience of that mentally. And in that case, many shayuk will say, we'll treat that with a physical remedy. That may be herb, an herbal remedy, or you know, in our day and age, there's this whole psychiatric thing, which didn't exist back in the day, they, but they still had um, physical remedies, you know? Um, so Islamic medicine, there's all kinds of remedies that are to put these physical ailments in, in balance that heal psycho, psychological things. And so, you know, I, I know most, I know Shayukh who can heal somebody spiritually on any level, on a deep level, but he'll tell somebody to take psychiatric medication or tell them to go see a doctor to get this thing sorted out because it's a physical thing and he doesn't want to make misguide them to think like oh well all ailments can be healed through spiritual work no there's a reality to sometimes we need to do you know sometimes these things have physical causes now the other element aspect of that though is that even if the thing can be healed or even whether it's a physical thing or even if it's a spiritual thing there are times when somebody has a, um, a, 
a, what we would call a mental illness and are in a certain state that we would say is either um, abnormal or they're dysfunctional. And the shayukh will say, actually, this is not meant to be removed from this person because this is a mercy from Allah. Because had this person, because when, when you are in that state, you are not muqallaf, uh, you're not uh, responsible for what you're doing, right? And if this was removed from that person, this person, Allah may know that this person would do something that would bring harm on themselves or that they would, they would be responsible for. And so putting this sort of veil over them or this, this station over them is actually a mercy and will, will be good for them in the akhirah. And so that's a really deep mm-hmm. level of understanding the reality of people's states. So you mentioned also Sheikh Nuruddin Turki. What was it simply the 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 outer sort of practices of Islam that he taught, or was he also teaching within a, a healing tradition of Sheikh Jamal? And is he a student of Sheikh Jamal? Yeah. So there's sort of depends who you would ask. Like so, formally speaking, Sheikh Nuruddin had a different had a different Shadali Sheikh, but before that time, when Sheikh Jamal was first becoming a Sheikh, he was a Qadi, they, they met in, in Al-Quds when they were younger. And uh, from that time, Sheikh Nuruddin always had a relationship with him of like um, learning and just pure reverence. Like, so his whole life, anytime Sheikh Jamal asked Sheikh Nuruddin to do anything, he would do it as if it was his teacher, right? And if you ask Sheikh Jamal, I've, he's told me specifically then and uh, that 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 Sheikh Nordin was his first student. Uh, and so there's there's you know there's a sort of a spiritual reality to quite you know who who knows what what the reality is underneath. But the the, the thing is is that um, Sheikh Nordin, his whole sort of last part of his life was all at you know, Sheikh Jamal told him to come back to the US from Egypt and uh, instructed him to do these things and, and then asked him to sort of be there to support his students, which he did. Uh, my, my interaction with Sheikh Nuruddin, I came there to learn, you know, my Fard Ayin. And I, I expected that that would be reading books and studying and learning in this, you know, memorizing texts and and what it really was is a very integrated experiential learning where i lived i lived near him i i you know would stay the night at his house i would cook, eat eat with him very often i would do chores around his house i built a zawiya f- for him and part of his teaching was through like Tarbiya in a way that is physical activity and teaching me about like annihilation of the nafs through instances where I would kill my nafs. Like, so for instance, I was building the zawiya for him and we, uh, I, I was painting the beams. He wanted the beams like the, in the ceiling painted green and it was freezing cold. And there was no heat and I was spending all day and night painting these beams green my hands were all cold and, you know, and I was 
proud of myself because I was like, oh, the sheikh's going to be very happy with me. I've completed this job. I've done well. And he came in and I was ready to receive the praise from the sheikh. You know, my nafs was like, ah, yeah, he's going to be so proud, happy with me. You know, I've done this thing. I've built this zawi for him. He comes in, he says, it's the wrong color green. Paint it again. <laughs> and that was it. You know, it was just in that moment, it, it seemed harsh. And, it se- and my whole experience was, oh, you know, my, my heart was broken. I, I was looking for praise from him and he seemed disappointed. And he's making me do this whole thing again. And I had to then go and repaint this whole thing in the cold and all this effort. And as I'm doing it the second time, it's, it's now dawning on me experientially that, oh, this is, I was, this was enough. I was just breaking my nuffs. And so the teaching that I had with him, you know, maybe earlier that week about killing the nuffs while we were sitting around eating, now he's teaching me. So my actual will is involved and, and I'm learning it in a way that will actually sit rather than just a cognitive you know, he's telling me a concept. He's actually teaching me the concept. And so this, this is what my, most of my experience was with him because I, I was with him for many years and I would drive him places and uh, I would drive him to give khutbahs and different massages and we would go into prisons to teach. He would teach the prisoners to read Quran and lead Jummah. And, and, you know, we'd be driving. I'd be driving and he'd be correcting how I'm driving and he'd be, he'd tell me to stop driving. And I'm like, okay. Sheikh told me to stop. I'm going to stop. He said, get out of the car. And he said, remove this. There was a log in the road. He told me to remove it. And so I got, I was like, okay. Get, take the log out. I put it away. Tells me how to do it. I get back in the car. He's silent. We're driving for another while. Just silent. And then he starts telling me about how one of the paths of knowledge is removing obstacles in the way of, for other people. Mm. Right. And so then this became the lesson. And I had just done this physical act of removing an obstacle. And so it it now that knowledge was impressed upon me in in, in an experiential way. So this is how you, this is the notion of tarbiyah and building ma'rifah, not just, not just telling somebody a concept, but actually teaching them and, and getting their will involved is how you actually learn on a deep level. Dr. Abdullah, you mentioned a word called presence, hudur. And, you know, I would imagine that a Buddhist monk would have no trouble sort of understanding that, um, especially with modern terms like uh, mindfulness. Others may wonder where it fits in within the Islamic tradition that they encounter in the mosque and and elsewhere. Could you say what hudur or presence is and its importance to the religious practices, whether it's zikr or salat and, and the other pillars? Yeah. You know, the, the essence of what we're trying to do in this life is to come back into this place of being a shaheed, of being a witness to Allah. In, the, in our pre-existence in this life, on the, in Allah said, Alastu bi rabbikum, am I not your Lord? And all of the souls said, Bella, shahidna. We, we witness. Now this word shahidna we, is not testify. It's not, I recognize something and, 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 I, and I cognitively get, but it is a, 
experiential feeling of Allah, of I witness that Allah is one, and that witnessing of Allah being one is an experience of Tawheed. And that is a, you cannot experience that in any other place other than in this moment. It is not, it is not in the past, it's not in the future, it is in the now. And, um, you know, um, so presence is what is necessary to come into an actual witnessing of Tawheed. Allah, Allah exists in his reality and, the, and, and the, the reality only exists in this moment. We have this notion of time where we, where we get stuck in the past and the future because of our orientation to cognition. We're, we're remembering things in the past and we, you know, have, we have anxiety about things in the past and we fear things in the future. And what that does is it takes us out of being able to be present in the moment. And then what it takes us away from is being able to actually be in the state of witnessing Tawheed, of witnessing the reality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a, as, a, as a visceral reality in the now rather than a theoretical concept in a book. And so the fact that for a lot of people, presence is not, a, is not their experience of Islam is actually a tragedy because it is the fundamental way to actually know Allah. Otherwise, it's, it's just a, uh, a theoretical concept of what you think Allah is. And a belief system. Yeah. Which is, so in your experience, was presence part of the earlier uh, Islamic community? Has it always been there? Or, has it, or is it something only the Sufis have stressed? No, of course. Of course it's been there from the beginning. I mean, um, when we look at the, I mean, the, the best way to understand you know, looking back is to just look at the life of the Prophet, Islam. You look at the, the daily life of the Prophet and the sort of seasons of the Prophet's life, there is an impossibility to avoid the fact that presence was a huge part of his life and his teaching. So, you know, anybody who knows the, the Sirah and the Sunnah knows that the Prophet every month or every period of time, maybe a couple months throughout his life, all the way up until, you know, the cave of Hira, he would go out into the wilderness and, and be alone in a cave, you know, regularly. This was a regular practice of his. And so what, you know, People may not have a detailed account of what he was doing in the cave, but if you can imagine, like he was, he wasn't reading because he didn't read, right? He, there was nobody else there. He wasn't socializing. We know that he wasn't, um, he wasn't going there to hunt. He was just going to sit and be with himself and his Lord. 
and and this is on a this is on a seasonal basis but then on a daily basis he was doing qiyam al-layl every night he would get up in the middle of the night and he would pray and he would stand and he would be with his lord this is very different than just salat yeah, salat is you know uh fard and he would do it with the community and he would do it during the day and it was relatively short and even in that you know that he we we know that when he would sit in jalus position he would be still he would be in a state of presence right and and we know this concept of khushu that everybody's always trying to have more khushu in their prayer but the reason why people have a hard time attaining that people are saying oh i don't have good khushu in my prayer because you're not practicing being present not i mean that it's something you have to practice you can't suddenly only in if you're only praying five times a day suddenly expect for in that moment when you have your head on the on the mat for that five minutes to be able to be fully present it's something that you have to train it's like a muscle that you have to train and so you have to be you know monthly going away from people and practicing being present and nightly waking up in the middle of the night and practicing for very for long periods of time standing still being still being present with your lord it's all these things are all building and practicing to be able to have khushu in prayer yes but also to be in a constant state of witnessing tauhid not just having it be a theoretical belief dr zulu you mentioned another word a really interesting word tauhid and for any of our listeners who may be acquainted in non-dualistic traditions of say Taoism or Vedanta mm. what does tawhid mean is is it a non-dualistic understanding of reality yeah it's oneness it's the the, the notion that everything has a has one source and that is god and that because god is the source of everything everything is interconnected everything is from this uh this source and therefore everything is under the power of that one god and so within you know there's a lot of depth of understanding what that then means in terms of the concept of tauhid but it is um that essentially everything is one and so our experience of of duality we we experience duality we experience separation we experience i'm over here you're over there i have my thoughts you have your thoughts uh we have you know linear experience of time and but this is all paradoxical and it's all specific to our plight here as human beings in this realm of dunya and so it it you, you, there is no way to understand tauhid without embracing the notion of paradox within our existence because we do we do perceive things and we experiencing things in a in duality but in in the reality that it is those dual those dual things that put the is where we see the balance and where we can actually access the reality of oneness beautiful You also mentioned um 
how it's sad that presence, khushu' hudur are sometimes not people's experience of Islam. And I know in other sort of talks that you've given, you've mentioned transactional v's transformational Islam. I know growing up Muslim that the fundamental narrative that often gets taught and is accepted is that the prayers or the actions are done in order to gain paradise in the hereafter. And so you're essentially accumulating uh, pious actions or thawab and uh, making a stagfar or asking for forgiveness for your sins in order to enter paradise. And this is the central narrative. Some people become more stricter in fiqh, assuming that a more stricter approach is going to uh, give them more thawab or more uh, good deeds uh, or bring them closer to God. And often I have to say anything outside this paradigm, which is often heavily rooted in uh, a legal understanding or, you know, it's it's a lot of stress is paid on the legalism uh, because it's all about actions and, and how you perform them, you know, etc. Now, anything outside this that challenges it is almost seen as uh, either unorthodox or not truly Islamic. Right. And and yet, Islamic scholars throughout history, from Al-Ghazali, Rumi, Ibn Arabi, are actually writing about a transformational Islam, or, or one that has more than just a one-dimensional legal system to it. Could you say more about that? I think this is the... Uh... This is the state that human humanity is in. And unfortunately, the state that the Muslim Ummah is in, in that we have been cut off from the heart. We have been cut off from the experiential witnessing uh, of Allah. And therefore, you know, this inability to recognize and experience the heart as the center of, the, of our being because we're cut off from that, what we, what we identify with is our, our separate individual bodies and the, 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 what we perceive as the sort of brain up here that is moving it, us around and, 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 and is um, oriented to the world in this very uh, one-dimensional outer realm, right? So if I perform these actions that I will in line with the formula that will make me be okay and I can just sort of move over you know I can put everything in a line line on the outside so that I can just sort of dot the I's and cross the T's and follow the formula to be saved or to be okay or to be entered into you know paradise and what's missing so that's a very transactional thing. If I do this thing, I'll get this other thing. But the reality is, is that Allah doesn't need us to do these external things. If it, it you know, Allah, Allah, this notion that like, well, if I pay my dues and I do this transaction, that Allah will then be happy with me because somehow we need to um, just sort of go through the motions. But what these, what this, what these things are for if you have a heart, if you are aware of the heart, is what they do is they provide a container and a grounding for your 
spiritual reality of your soul to, to um, get by in this dense experience of being a separate human being in this dunya world. And so we need our bodies and we need the Sharia to maneuver in this world in a way that keeps us safe. But what are we keeping safe? Why are we going through the effort to eat halal and to pray five times a day and to follow the moon cycle and to do all these things that are aligned with fitra of our bodies for protection and alignment of what? It's of, of our of our soft, light, spiritual nature that is the true essence of who we are, our ruh. The ruh is who we were before and who we will be after. It is the thing that we carry with us and is, and is still deeply connected to that place of alastabirabikum, of, of witnessing Allah. And, and we have to recognize, tap into, and develop and deepen an orientation to that spiritual being and, and identify that as our identity and recognize that all this other, and that's where the transformation comes from. These, these other transactional things that we do are in, a, in essence, they're not for, Allah doesn't need us to do them. Allah has given us these things as a cheat sheet to understand how we need to put ourselves in alignment for the development of our soul. And the development of our soul requires more than just bending and bowing because, you know, a chicken can do that. What the bending and the bowing and the washing the hands and the doing the, is, is, is one part of putting ourselves in alignment so that we can then do the work on the heart to turn the heart towards Allah. And the turning of the heart towards Allah is something that we as individuals with our will have the responsibility to strive and struggle for, right? The striving, the struggling is not just waking up and making wudu at a certain time. It is, why, what is it about you internally that's resisting getting up, right? What is it about you internally that's resisting being generous? What, what, is, what do you need to let go of and actually be conscious and aware of in your heart to understand where the resistance is that you need to work on and, 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 and um, let go of and heal and open to? That is the work of being Muslim. Of, of actively surrendering to the will of Allah, actively surrendering to Allah and actively putting yourself in a state of witnessing, that requires much more than just following rules and, and transactionally doing what you're supposed to do. It's more than that, you know, anybody can do these things. And we know this because we know there's plenty of people who do the outward actions perfectly, exactly how it says to do them in the book, they do them. Their beard is the perfect length. Their pants are the perfect length. They, you know, have the right uh, miswak and they have memorized the Quran and all these things that are, can be taught to anybody. Anybody can do these things. But 
I, I, we know people who do those things perfectly and have uh, hatred and jealousy and enmity and, and, are, and do evil things. So it's, that's not the whole picture. That's part of the picture. It's a very important part of the picture, but it's in order to uh, allow for the, the heart to be healed and to be cleaned. And that takes more than just, you know, that is a transformational process. So the transactional things, so, so transactional versus trans transformational means don't just do the things because you think that you have to, do them because they're there <clears throat> for the purpose of transforming your soul. If I'm listening to this and I am, say, a practicing Muslim and I feel actually I'm doing my, you know, I fast in Ramadan, I pray, I give zakat, but uh, my nafs is still getting the best of me. How do I transform? How do I sh move from a transactional to a transformational experience of doing these outward practices? What advice would you give people especially as you've said that people like uh cd sheikh said uh jamal far and few uh in in this time the first and first and foremost thing is self-awareness to have self-awareness and that that is seems relatively simple but it's very difficult because for most people they don't even know what the self is they have a very shallow notion of who they are and they think they are, they think the, the, the I that they identify with is, you know, who their family told them they were. Uh, I'm, I'm Bangladeshi from South London or I'm from this village in, in, in Pakistan. And I, uh, my father was an engineer and I like, um, I like uh, football and I, you know, aspire to be a doctor or something like that. That's not actually who you are. That, that is the sort of trappings of the specific path that you have found yourself in this dunya. But underneath that, the, 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 the self is the part of you that has uh, ultimately their, your reality is to witness a lot, to be in a state where you're constantly recognizing your dependence on Allah. And anything that's keeping you from that is what has covered over what is covered over that truth. And though that the, the work that we need to do to uncover that truth is the self-awareness, bringing conscious awareness to what is inside of you and then working to change what is inside of you. Uh, and, and, and that means that's why presence is important. Because ultimately our goal is to be present with Allah. But you can't do that until you're present with yourself to get through all the crust on your heart. And most of us are, don't even take a second to be present with our heart. We're constantly trying to distract ourselves from that place of presence because it's scary. Because we don't know how to deal with it because it feels dark and unknown. And so what do we do? We keep people around us. We... Uh, watch movies, we, we find all kinds of distractions to not just sit with ourselves. And, and this is, 
really problematic because all you're doing is kicking the can down the road because ultimately you have to do that before you leave this world. And if you don't, you will be stuck in being held responsible for all of what you didn't, uh, what you didn't uncover and what you don't remember, right? right? So we have to come back into remembering our, our true state of witnessing Allah. And so that takes some, some work of, of self-discovery, self-awareness. So what that means is, yes, learning to be present. So that means like actually having a practice of sitting still on a daily basis. You know, breathing helps because the breath essentially brings you into the moment. It's, you have to breathe to survive in each moment and, you have, and you're breathing in every moment. So that really can help regulate your ability to stay present. And then once you cultivate a basic sense of just being able to be still with yourself, then you can start to uh, take account of your thoughts, take account of your actions, take account of your impulses. It doesn't mean judge them, just means notice them. Why did I just judge that person? What, is that, what does that mean about me? Um, Oh, I noticed I was annoyed right now by this person and their actions. Why should I be annoyed with this person? What is that? Where does that come from? What was it that that person was doing that made me annoyed? Maybe I should pay attention to that so I can unlock and uncover where there is a, a, a sickness in my heart. And that's how we do the work of transformation and, and, and ultimately opening our hearts and healing. And we can do it, we can do it ourselves and we can do it and other people can help us. You know, this is what the shayukh have always done is, is helped not just teach people knowledge from books, but actually help uncover the knowledge in their heart. You know, this, the, the real knowledge is, is when you know because you are in a state of tawakkul knowledge that comes from surrendering and trusting in Allah. I'm just thinking from somebody who might not be steeped in the Islamic tradition, they might say that this being present, being aware of your thoughts, sounds very much like John Kabat-Zinn's work on mindfulness, for example. Eckhart Tolle, his power of now, be present, in the being and then byron katie does some fabulous very interesting work about you know turn it around and judge your neighbor then turn it around and and see how that works and who would you be without your story and thich natan in 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 you know in the zen buddhist tradition has a lot of mindful breathing walking speaking etc at that point when you do this inner work what is it that islam and the practices say zikr, say you're doing the zikr of Allah. How is that any different, or what is that doing to the state of mindfulness or presence yeah. that you're in? What What's the extra? Yeah. So the extra thing. So some of the practices can feel similar and can and can feel like they're ultimately getting not ultimately, but getting this person to the same place. But the 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 fundamental difference from an in an Islamic approach is that the, the entire purpose of doing that practice, the entire, the entire purpose of coming into presence is not simply just to be in a state of calm, 
and not simply just to be in a state of peace with yourself where you're more happy, but it is to, um, it has to lead back to Allah and not, not just saying, okay, Allah, I believe in Allah, but actually where once you're in this state of presence and you're in a state of witnessing Allah, the fundamental thing that we're doing and why we want to do and what we do when we get to that point is to surrender your soul to Allah, meaning your essence of who you are as a human being from an Islamic reality for all human beings is that you are a slave to Allah. And so you basically, once you open your heart and you recognize this thing, you are surrendering that to Allah. You are plugging your heart into the source, which is the one God. And, and that your ultimate destination and the ultimate place where you're going to go and what's good for you and what aligns you with truth and what keeps you safe is not in your hands, it's in Allah's hands. And so this, you, you whereas somebody can get to a place of presence and feeling calm and being detached from their ego even, so even people can be like annihilated, the self can be annihilated, but then at the point of annihilation, then what? then it sort of folds in on itself. Then it's the self surrendering to the self. It's the self folding in on the annihilation of the self. And for us, for, for Muslims, this, the annihilation of the self is to then be uh, unified with the one, with Allah, with Tawheed. And then in that submission to Allah and your recognition of your slavehood, is where you elevate your existence. And then therefore Allah can actually guide you and be with you because it's Allah, we recognize that Allah is the source of everything, not us. So that's a fundamental difference from just being in a state of detached, det being detached from the world and being in a state of ecstasy or nirvana, or being in a state of peace where it's, that's sort of floating on its own in a place of okayness, nothingness, happiness, love. But ultimately, we don't know what anything is for or what anything is. It's all in Allah's hands. And so what, what we're doing at that point is completely putting our, uh, our, our life, our safety, our existence in Allah's hands. And that's where the ultimate realization and elevation comes with humanity is that you are, you know, getting beyond you and you are giving over your existence to Allah because it's his. This brings up a really interesting point. I believe it was uh, Sheikh Abu Hassan al-Shadri who said that ours is a way of surrender, complete surrender to the divine at the same time when you see examples of that in the islamic world of people who had reached a very high degree of servanthood they were also very very active whether it's amir abdul qadir jazari or al-ghazali or ibn arabi pro prolific sort of writers right. and thinkers but they were in a complete state of surrender mm. uh, and and it's evident that 
the the majesty of their work was not from their own egos it it was from something higher uh, and and some of them even write about how it's inspired work etc but on the other hand you also have in the modern era this idea of self development taking ownership cultivating your will and and sometimes that can be interpreted as being the master of your own fate and i know in the islamic tradition i'm sure our listeners will be aware of the hadith do do, do you work and then you know tayyib kam and then uh, rely on the divine and iqbal one of my favorite poets has a lot to say around the development of khudi or self as, as not some passive uh, ego but one that's dynamically active in the world but again the, the uh, one interpretation of that or a misinterpretation might be that somebody is uh, rather than being in a state of surrender is trying to determine their fate or is is trying to you know design their own life story or is trying to take you know is is making these decisions to do x y z rather than completely surrendering so it can be a a fine line and and could you say something ab- around that or draw more light into somebody in a complete state of surrender to divine will but is very active these say this modern or, or secular concept of being being very active from your own will yeah so if it's like you know in in the case of like the awliya or saints or people who are really on a on a level of act like literally have surrendered their own self to allah then the people at this high of a level become the hands with which allah does work in the world you know and and um this is to a certain degree like in in tasawwuf is known as baqa right so when the when the self is annihilated and there's no longer an ego propelling it forward this allah basically guides this person and so they become a conduit for doing allah's work and so they can be seen as being really active and um busy in the world but there if you ask them like oh no the thing you were trying to do didn't work out they just smile and be unfazed because it's not their thing that they're trying to do it's they're just serving their lord and so they're completely detached from the outcome and so modern you say like modern notion of this of like you know build your own destiny or you know you you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do you know take control and and even manifest your destiny right uh and the what we would say is that or what islam is guiding us to do is to be active in the world like we were not supposed to sit back and be inactive like we there is no monasticism in islam we're not supposed to sit on top of a mountain and and reach a state of peace you're supposed to come actually you're supposed to go to the mountain but then you come back down and you be with the people and you serve the people and if you have done if you have achieved a annihilation of the self then often what happens is you can do a lot more in your life people tend to be more active because they have medded they have a push from allah allah's working through them so therefore the limitations that we have in our own self have are no longer 
they're no longer bound by those things because you have the power of the one. You have the power of the one whose plan the whole thing is and who's not bound by time and space and energy and sleep and right and so when you're gone and you're not really concerned what you're doing but you're just serving your master you have uh you have actually uh, powers that are beyond the ability of the human being and on a, on a, so that's on a you know pretty high level but even on a level that we can all cultivate is that when we tether our camel and trust Allah, I mean, do what Allah has given you to do. Take care of the world that is around you. Take care of what has been put before you and completely divorce yourself from what's going to happen from it. That's not your concern. It's not your business. You never had control of it. You never will. But what you do have control over, and what, which is an amana, really, a trust that Allah has put in your care, is the things that you have control over, which are very small. Like ultimately, the, the only things we really have control over are our thoughts, our intentions, our feelings, and where we place our foot one in front of the other, meaning where you decide to direct yourself, not where you decide what you decide to do and accomplish even. You know, so I can say, I'm gonna set out to build a city. What's in my control is the intention and then starting to build a city. <laughs> Whether it's going to get built or not is, is up to Allah. And if I approach the work with that notion and I purify my intention from the beginning, most likely <clears throat> the whole endeavor will be blessed. There'll be barakah in it because I'm not doing it for myself. I'm not attached to it. I don't even care if it gets done. I'm doing it because it, I feel like Allah has guided me to do this. And if that's true, and then and it comes to fruition, it will be because it was it had this barakah in it, not from my own, not from my own greatness or power or ability even. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Blue, could you tell us about your role at the Cambridge Muslim College and uh, what sort of work and projects you're involved in? Yeah, so I'm the principal of Cambridge Muslim College, which means I'm, I'm, in, I'm in charge of the whole endeavor, academics, programs. Um, uh, and, you know, this was a conception of Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. And he had the vision of having a, a college that is um, in this space where it's honoring the tradition, the traditional approach to learning while embracing academia. And so he is now, he's the dean of the college and he basically, he is our sort of spiritual guide and our uh, theological grounding in, in how we approach everything. It keeps it very you know, uh, tight in terms of making sure it is balanced in um, our approach to Islamic learning is balanced in the knowledge of the traditional knowledge of Islam and in, in the Islamic way. And so my, my role is to really help deliver on this vision and take it forward. And so my background being in psychology and this notion of development 
we have we have a history in the college of having real grounding in um, academics and Islamic knowledge. I mean, Sheikh Abdelkim is known to be just impeccable. His his intellect is is enormous and it's incredible. Um, and so we have a real incredible program, BA in Islamic studies. We have a diploma program, and so what I'm trying to really bring this and round out this 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 thing is to make it really reflect the Islamic notion of, of, of Islamic education. And instead of that just being a descriptor of, of what we're teaching, so instead of education about Islam, it's actual an, an Islamic approach to education as well as being taught about Islam. So they're learning fiqh, they're learning Quran studies, they're learning kalam, but um, what I'm what I'm really trying to build on this is this process of tarbiyah that I learned from my shayu, where it's not just sitting and memorizing text in a book; it is transformational. That that the real knowledge is about the illumination of the heart, and that you know we need to learn the knowledge in the books. You have to study these things, but that can't that can't be the only thing. And what we have right now is we have a lot of scholars and we, we, will, we sometimes, you know, really put on a pedestal these scholars who have memorized texts. We talk about people who have ijazah in a book. And what that means is they have memorized the book and they can teach the, the, the theoretical knowledge that is in the book. And traditionally that, you know, there are elements of that but in a, in a real holistic sense of what Islamic education is and tarbiyah is that you would get an ijazah in, in once you had not only understood the knowledge, but you are, are experientially understanding it and living it. And that means being able to demonstrate it through in the world, through uh, your character, through actions of serving people, through, you know, so what we do at the college is that we have a whole system of khidmah. The students are actively serving the community. They, they, they have a rotation of doing dishes in the, in the cleaning up after themselves. We serve them food. Um, just today, matter of fact, I had a group of students and we were out in, in the forest land on our, on our campus, on our property, and doing work like... Uh, clearing some brushwood and hauling, hauling things off and creating a, a, a space for them to learn building. They're building a fire pit and building benches around so that they can have, but they're building it themselves so that they can then have like daris there and things. And the, and the idea is for them to be active, just like my sheikh taught me, like move the branch out of the, uh, out of the road. And this is what really set in for me. So we're, this is what I'm trying to do with the students is really, you know, we do, I teach them martial arts and we're doing, um, talking about, you know, uh, things like lifestyle and diet and sleep and, um, <clears throat> you know, praying together and having suhbah with each other. You know, this idea of learning heart to heart and having transmission happen is a really fundamental aspect of an Islamic education. And, and I find, unfortunately, that it's really missing in a lot of the 
even Daralalums, who are what you would think of as being traditional educational institutes, but it's really still just focused on memorization. And, and this is not what, this is, we need that. We need people to preserve the knowledge in that way, but we also need people who are able to embody it and whose character is a demonstration of that knowledge. And we need people who understand that the, the heart knowledge, you know, the, the true knowledge means it will impress upon the heart. It means the heart will become illuminated from the knowledge. And this is the type of, 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 of approach to education I think we direly need in the, in the Muslim world, in the Ummah, and, and really in the world at this day and age to, to really move forward this idea of transformation versus transactional. Dr. Abdullah, as I understand, the Cambridge Muslim College is training the next generation of scholars and thinkers. We also have, you know, a lot of youth uh, who may not have this opportunity to become scholars or uh, have uh, for their lifestyles or the uh, academic appetite to, you know, go through that educational process. And some of them may be disenfranchised. They may, uh, I was speaking to my cousin, in fact, recently, and very intelligent young man just finds the narrative of the Islam that he's been presented with, that transactional narrative, quite limiting and not quite adding up. It raises questions. How do I know I, I, I shouldn't be a Buddhist or a Jew? And if I was born in that sort of household, I would have grown up and my conditioning would have been such. You mentioned the Tarbiya you experienced from your shuyukh. And we have a lot of youth who might be disenfranchised from the Islamic community who might see Islam merely as an identity, who might not have access to a community of tariqa, of people who are doing this inner work, how can we reach out to them? What sort of work can we do to answer not just their intellectual academic questions, but to, to, to reconnect them with the Islamic tradition and, and hence the divine? I think it's about coming to their level and approaching them from their perspective, what makes sense to them, what do they, what is important to them, and having people that know how to come into their world, respect them, accept them, and, and then make Islam relevant to what makes sense to them in their world. And that, that, that usually doesn't happen. Usually what you have is the older uncles who don't get it and think they're, they're, that they're just gone astray because it's not what they, that's not how they did it back home. And they're completely ignorant of the fact that they actually live in a totally different world and, and trying to make sense of things from back home for people who aren't back home, who didn't grow up here, grew up in a different generation, different world, different paradigm, different influences. You can't, you have to take that into consideration. Islam is a religion for all times. That doesn't mean that you, you teach it and you talk about it and you do it in exactly the same way through each generation and each place and each, it has to adapt to what makes sense to the people. The prophet, Laysat-Sam was the first one to do this. And he, when he would spread Islam, he would go to the people and he would adapt their previous culture into Islam. He didn't say, stop doing what you're doing and do this. Never, he never did that. 
he said, oh, this is beautiful what you're doing. Just add this to it. You know, this is why you go around the world today in the Muslim world and you see diversity. You see the beauty of diversity. People do the, the Islamic things very differently. It looks very differently because they've adapted their own culture. And what people have to understand is the youth who grew up here, this is their culture. You can't say that their culture is a place that they've never been. Just because that culture doesn't get passed in the blood. You know, this is, a, this is a, a very much about a locality. It's a geography. And, and so you, we have to take into consideration. So if it's British, young British Muslims, the British experience needs to be part of their uh, way of understanding the beauty of Islam. And that means that it needs to be made relevant to their lives. And we don't need to tell them to stop doing what they love or what they're interested in. We need to help them see it through this different lens. And that's the key. And I think we just, we need more people who understand that approach and then, and then programs that are in place and community support for this type of approach. And it's a different paradigm. It's, it's, not, it's not going to work by coming in and saying, these kids are gone astray, what they're doing is bad, we need to change them and have them do something else. Well, it won't work. It doesn't work for that developmental age. You have to, you know, the, the Islamic pedagogy is you, you uh, play with them for seven years, you teach them for seven years, and you befriend them for seven years. So the youth usually that we're talking about here are at least in that third seven, if not beyond. And so trying to tell them to do something different will backfire. You have to befriend them. You, 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 you stay with them on the, side by side on the path and say, hey, I know how it is. I'm here with you. We're going to look at this together. Tell me what's important to you. You know, you, you respect them like you would a friend. You don't go around pointing your finger at a friend, telling them they should do something different, right? You, you, uh, that's the approach we need to take. So. And my final question, what advice would you give to parents who are Muslim and, you know, are, faced with this challenge where you've got a, new, a generation emerging on technology is just a given. Their way of thinking, the millennials, is very different to the generation before. And obviously in the Islamic tradition, there, there, there are sayings such as, you know, do not raise your children in the way you've been raised because they were born for another time. And yet this time is unpredictable even by the experts, whether it's education and, and, and what sort of, you know, the exponential change we're experiencing. And so amidst all that, they're trying to reconnect with their Islamic tradition and find answers. And we've had some good examples. Fons Vitae have produced a Al-Ghazali series uh, of books. Um, but then the question is about actually embedding that and making that part of your family or your home. And I haven't seen anything, and you know, I, I may be wrong, but I haven't seen anything that has been written in comparison to John Kabat-Zinn's book on mindful parenting, where he deep dives and goes through examples of his own life and how it's an inner work that you've got yeah. to do, not just a system of providing, but yeah. you know, it, it, it's a lot more meaningful and deeper. So what's the Islamic paradigm for Tarbiyah in, in the modern world? What sort of advice would you give? to parents i mean like you said i mean unfortunately you, you can't you can't teach somebody to be a 
a, a way that you're not, right? And so it sort of it has to start with what you're doing um, first. And so uh, this is the most powerful way is to do your work on yourself. And, you know, this, in order to really be a good parent, you have to be a good human being. You have to be self-aware. You have to be recognizing what your relationship to your parents was. And that takes self-awareness. That takes revisiting. Well, why, why, are you, why are you the way you are? How, how did that either, you know, some of that is beautiful. Some of it was definitely damaging to your heart. And so you have to come to terms with those things and recognize that you're probably passing that same torch on to your children if you're not aware of it. Um, and so it takes some deep reflection and it takes some self, uh, not only self-awareness, but self-accountability and being able to humble yourself before your children and, and to say, I don't know everything and, and that I'm working on myself too. And what you do is you demonstrate for them, you give them permission to do the same. But if it's always pointing the finger and saying, you need to do this, you, know, you point one finger at somebody else, you're pointing three back at yourself. So it's, this is how it has to be. And then in addition to that, I think it's, again, I think parents need to understand this seven, seven, seven. It's very, it's very fundamental. Like you, you can't be, you can't be trying to direct somebody that is not in line with their developmental stage, it just won't work, it will backfire. And so if you're not aware of these things, you're gonna just get constantly frustrated and you're gonna do more damage. And then also the, all the other things I was saying about meeting them at their level, like you know, it depends the age of your ch children. If, if they're still under seven, then you, you have, you've, got to, you've got to stop teaching them and get on your knees and play with them. And if they're past seven, then you need to teach them, but teach them in a way that's like, be self-aware, you know, not pointing the finger, but like exploring the world with them, asking questions with them, being curious and loving, you know, they're not going to, if you're not loving, they're not going to trust you and they're not going to want to listen to what you say. Uh, so, you know, so it's, it's a big responsibility raising children you know, unfortunately, it doesn't come with a manual. And unfortunately, most people aren't aware of them themselves and aren't um, doing their own tarbiya to much less be able to know how to do it with another person. So I think the, the most important thing is start with yourself. On that note, Dr. Abdullah, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. My pleasure. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, we went on a. We went on a lot of. Covered a lot of material. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually got more things to ask, but I think I'm going to leave that for another podcast, inshallah. Yeah, inshallah. <laughs>